Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 39 of History on Fire. If you are completely allergic to ads, um, there's an easy solution. For $5 a month, you can join my Patreon page, and there you can get versions of the episodes with no ads. On the other hand, if you don't mind me trying to figure out ways that the podcast stay financially viable through ads, here we go. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Nordic Track. I'm super excited about being sponsored by them because I actually want their products. This is not just stuff that is like, oh, this looks good, maybe. No, I am getting this stuff. I've officially decided. I have my eyes on this one uh, treadmill desk. Uh, What I dig about it is the idea that you know, I spend an ungodly amount of hours at the computer every day, researching, working, answering messages. And so the idea of being able to have a standing desk connected to a treadmill, where I can walk at a leisurely pace while I get my work done, but by the end of the day I've just clocked in miles and miles, I kind of dig that concept. So that's next on my shopping list. Special offer for History on Fire listeners, you get $75 off your Nordic Track purchase by visiting nordictrack.com forward slash history. Again, use the offer code history, it's nordictrack.com forward slash history, and you'll save $75 off your purchase. In addition to treadmills, they have exercise bikes, inclined trainers, a bunch of equipment for strength training, all sort of really healthy, really good stuff, so check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35, 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month starting today for just five dollars so while supplies last only five dollars for history on fire listeners this would cost needless to say would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route 
So go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode is also brought to you by greats.com. Greats is a wonderful sneakers company offering men's and women's styles. They have uh, I, they just sent me a pair and I I forgot how much I like sneakers. I've been wearing different kind of shoes lately and these ones are just awesome. So check it out. They have several of their best-selling products from both lace-ups and slip-ons. Um, I particularly dig the slip-on because I never wear shoes in the house, so I like the idea of being able to get in and out of shoes quickly. One cool thing for History on Fire listeners is that you can get a 15% discount on your first purchase by going to www.greats.com with the code HISTORY, all capital letter, the code HISTORY. So if you find yourself in need of shoes, check them out because I've tried them and they are very, very good. You guys by now know who else we're sponsored by since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week. Three days a week, we got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four. High quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also, please show some love to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has a whole variety of products that I use every day from some of their supplements, including Alpha Brain that I just tried earlier today for the millionth time in my life. Excellent stuff. Exercise equipment. If you walk into my house right there in the living room, there's a collection of kettlebells that get to be put to very good use. Their kettlebells, by the way, are amazing. They have some really artistic shapes, some of them. They are functional and yet really beautiful. They're like a work of art. So you have exercise equipment, you have, um, particularly on it is famous for their supplements and for some of the special foods they sell. In addition, you have clothing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So rather than me trying to tell you everything they have, which would take the whole episode, go check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. And the other good folks who sponsor me since forever are the people at Datsusara. Website is dsgear.com. Again, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. 
There's no code, no slash, no nothing. You can just go there and check out all the goodies. They just restocked all their bags. Um, I use the backpack every time I travel. My daughter takes one of their backpacks to school. I use a computer bag when I go to teach at the university. Lots of great stuff there. So check out for the greatest hemp gear on the planet at dsgear.com. Something I should mention before I go any further. I hinted at this in the last episode and I'm just going to still keep hinting because I haven't really gotten any further than I was a month ago. I am desperately trying to figure out ways to keep History on Fire viable for the future. I want to make sure in this year, by the time this year will come to an end, I'll have produced 15 episodes, which is an insane amount for a long-form history podcast. Takes an insane... I mean, I really spend an ungodly amount of hours doing this stuff, which is great. I enjoy it and I love it. I just want to make sure that I'm able to keep doing it in the future. So... Again, I can't tell you anything yet, but keep up that I will be announcing at some point in the next month, two, three, somewhere around there, about which direction History on Fire is going to take, because I definitely need to tweak a few things in order to make sure History on Fire stays viable. So the good news is that the goal is to make sure you keep getting lots of episodes every year. Uh, I need to understand how to make that happen, whether to still keep relying primarily on ads or whether to do something different. So having said that, just stay tuned because news will be coming in, if not in the next episode, sometime in the next few. Having said that, let me jump into one more ad before we get going with our, uh, our episode. This episode of History on Fire is also sponsored by Casper.com. These guys make some unbelievably comfortable mattresses. And considering that you spend one-third of your life sleeping, well, hopefully, sleep is important, so I would strongly recommend that one-third of your days go into sleeping, the least you can do, the favor you can do to yourself, is find a way to be comfortable. And Casper mattresses do just that. They have over 20,000 reviews, for the most part, all kind of, close to five stars, over 20,000, that's quite a lot, across Casper itself, Amazon, Google. So Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress company. They have a couple of different models. One, the fancier, if you can afford it, get it, absolutely. The other one, for a more basic, but still incredibly high-quality mattress. Plus, they offer pillows, sheets, other things. The prices are much more affordable than you would be if you go anywhere else because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. If you're not completely satisfied, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So you get to try it, and if you don't want it, you can return it, which is always a very nice thing. Casper has been nice enough to actually send me one of their mattresses, and who... I just received it, unboxed it, and I got to spend the night sleeping on it before recording this. It's like floating on clouds while hordes of happy singing gnomes spend the night massaging all your sore muscles. That's more or less the experience that you're going to have, or at least that's the experience that I had. So when they say comfort, they are not kidding. 
I can't promise that they actually have tiny massaging gnomes who sing all night while being all happy. That may just be my imagination. But I can tell you that the comfort is quite high. So get $50 toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash HOF and using the code HOF at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. So again, that's $50 toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash HOF and using the code HOF at checkout. Having said all that, we'll jump into the episode right now. So if you are missing any of the links from any of the, the stuff that I've been reading, you can find them all with the code, discount codes and everything else at the historyonfirepodcast.com website. Links are there in the episode notes. But now, without further ado, let's go to History on Fire. The tale we'll play with today is a perfect example of what the great author Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey. The way Campbell tells it, the hero's journey begins when ordinary life is suddenly interrupted by a call, inviting the hero of our story to go on a dangerous adventure and fulfill his destiny. And this is exactly what happens in our story. Except, well, except for one detail. Did I say his destiny? Not his. The recipient of the message is a teenage illiterate peasant girl in the France of the 1400s. At 13 years old, her life was turned upside down when she began hearing voices and having visions of angelic figures delivering her messages. The voices told her that no one on earth, no knight nor king, could restore the kingdom of France. No one could, no one that is, except for her. Okay, so we have a possibly insane girl hearing voices. This is hardly the stuff that makes the history books. At best, this would be an interesting case study for the history of mental illness. But that's not what happens here. Because the girl and their voices will change the course of the Hundred Years' War between France and England. The voices will propel this young woman away from the typical existence of farm girls in the 1400s and transform her in a force of nature, will embrace a heroic and tragic destiny that was entirely beyond what anyone from her gender, social class and age could legitimately expect. Today, History on Fire is literally on fire, since this series will cover the life of one of the most enigmatic people in history, the young woman who became known as Joan of Arc. Before we get going with our story, a few introductory remarks are in order. Let's start with one about language. Despite the geographical proximity between France and Italy, the French and Italian languages couldn't be more different from one another. In Italian you pronounce every single letter. In French words are spelled with about 3 million letters, but you usually pronounce two or something. It's just... Okay, I'm mildly exaggerating, but the point being, if you think I do bad things pronouncing the English language, 
rest assured that my pronunciation of French words is much, much worse. So to anyone who has even a passing knowledge of French, my deepest apologies for the horrible things I'll do to this language in the course of this series. Okay, then, introductory remark number two. Something that has been bothering me to no end since I started History on Fire is how little information I can usually dig up about women in history. The only episode so far, entirely dedicated to a female character, the Pirate Queen, was painfully thin on the sources dedicated to such an extraordinary individual. Uh, By the way, if you haven't checked out the Pirate Queen episode, that was a fun one. But plenty of times, this lack of sources has stopped me from being able to dedicate a full episode to women. Sometimes I run into great stories centered on the life of a historical woman, only to realize that all the available information can be summed up in a few minutes, not nearly enough for a whole episode. I think, for example, of Tom Wegodzen, uh, the 12th century female samurai, or Lawson, the Apache shaman warrior who rode with Geronimo, or Julie Daubigny, the 17th century French fencer and opera singer, and many, many more. It does seem like many ladies left a mark in history by living wild, exciting lives, but so little is written about them. So it's not that I want to cover almost exclusively male characters because I hate women or something, It's just that usually there are lots more sources about them. Well, today this rule does not apply. In fact, there's more written about Joan of Arc than about most people in history. And for, and probably even more than nearly anyone who lived when she did. As author Kelly DeVries writes, no person in the Middle Ages, male or female, has been the subject of more historical studies than Joan of Arc. There are literally hundreds of books dedicated to her life, so lack of sources is not going to be a problem. There are both contemporary sources from the time when she lived. We get their own words, we get other people writing about her, we get lots of secondary sources. There's literally a mountain of stuff about her. So her stories that we'll explore in this series, and by the way, when Thinking of this series, I originally thought, okay, I'll get two episodes about this story. Then I realized, okay, there's a lot of material here. I'll probably get three episodes on this story. By now, as I'm beginning to record episode one, I'm not even fully done researching the story. There are still a few things left. And I'm thinking this is going to be a four-part series. So, you know, one end, this will allow us to dive deep. On the other hand, for those of you guys who want to wait until a series is over to listen to the whole thing, you may have to wait a little while, because this is probably four episodes. In any case, my point being that the topic of this story is really one of the greatest mysteries in history. Now, let me qualify that statement. Normally, when we speak of historical mysteries, we speak of events that we just don't know much about usually something on which we have very thin evidence. In this case, the opposite is true. As I mentioned a few seconds ago, there's plenty of evidence, ranging from contemporary letters, trial records, and all sorts of other stuff. We know more about her than on most other historical figures. 
We know exactly what happens, when it happens, and all the key events detailed step-by-step from multiple sources. So, where's the mystery? It's not the what that is mysterious, but the how. According to logic and common sense, none of the things that happen in our story should have been able to happen. What she accomplished should have been exceptional if done by an aristocratic, seasoned male leader, but it seems downright impossible for someone like her. The world she lived in was hyper-patriarchal and very class-conscious, so on the surface there should have been no chance whatsoever that a young peasant girl could pull this off. She belonged to the wrong gender, wrong social class and wrong age to achieve what she dreamed of. And yet she did. Author Mary Gordon captured the weirdness of it all perfectly when she says, The life of John is such a flagrant beating of the odds that no facts sufficiently explain the course of it. She was born during one of the most corrupt, demoralized periods of French history. She considered a religious and military hero, but she had neither religious nor military training. So, all of this is to say that the lead in our series is one of the most unusual human beings in history. To the point that Mark Twain referred to John's life as, I quote, the most noble life that was ever born in this world, save only one. Granted, not everyone may agree with Twain's judgment, but still, this lady was no ordinary human being. That much is safe to say. Growing up, I was vaguely aware of the John of Arc story, but nothing more than that. I never dug deeper, probably because back then, European history was not my thing. What first got me hooked on the John of Arc story was watching a black and white film made in 1928 entitled The Passion of John of Arc by Carl Theodor Dreyer. I watched it when I was, uh, I don't know, probably about 18, and I remember it blowing my mind. Now, I'm not usually a big fan of black and white silent movies, but this was an absolute masterpiece. In particular, Renée Falconetti, the actress playing Joan of Arc, just wow, you know, her acting just like her personal life and like Joan of Arc's life was somewhere between genius and insanity. Her performance in this film is widely considered one of the most intense and legendary in all of movie history. Now, I'm not suggesting The Passion of Joan of Arc as a fan flick to watch on a Saturday night. It really is not. Besides being black and white and silent, the film is extremely minimalistic. You know, Almost the entire thing focuses only on the faces of the actors talking to one another. Which, if you describe that to me, I would say, not in a million years I want to watch that movie. But I can tell you this, it's a powerful, powerful movie. It actually triggered in me a minor, completely natural psychedelic experience. I remember walking out of the theater and for 10 minutes the streets of Milan look unlike how I'd ever seen them. Uh, the movie was that intense. 
in any case, enough about that. That's where my interest for John of Arc began. Well, that, and of course, the, the character of John of Arc in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, particularly when she leads an aerobics exercise class. That's my favorite. In any case, last thing I want to say um, before we jump into the chronological telling of the story is that Joan of Arc had turned into a, you know, especially, in re- well, actually not only recent years. I was about to say in recent years. It's not exactly true. It really has been going on for quite a while. But she has turned into a highly flexible symbol. She's been adopted by everyone for their own, often opposite, political ideologies. Her story is legendary, and yet ambiguous enough that it has been appropriated by everyone. As author Ellen Castor described her as being, I quote, a hero to nationalists, monarchists, liberals, socialists, the right, the left, Catholics, Protestants, traditionalists, feminists, Vichy and the resistance. So basically everyone has seized on some aspect of her myth and morphed it into whatever they wanted her to be. So now that I got my introductory remarks off my chest, let's jump into this tale. Keep in mind, however, that as weird as that may sound, in this first episode of this series, we will speak preciously little about her story. The next three episodes will be entirely about her, but in this first one, I want slash need to primarily focus on the historical context that she will dramatically affect with her short life. I won't go deep into the Hundred Years' War because it would take an ungodly number of episodes to get that done. I just want to do just enough to help make sense of John's contribution. So one episode on this seems fair. If you can't wait to sink your teeth into John's story, just have a tiny bit of patience because the episode coming up next month and the ones after that will be entirely about her. So let's get the ball rolling. With this warning in mind, let's get going. It would be nice if something called the Hundred Years War actually lasted a hundred years, right? That would be logical enough, but, but that would also be too easy. Technically, if we want to be sticklers for math, the Hundred Years' War lasted 116 years, from 1337 to 1453. But the Hundred and Sixteen Years' War doesn't quite have the same ring. So the Hundred Years' War it is. Okay, so it's 116 years of continuous war, right? Well, no, even that would be too easy. The reality is that what is known as the Hundred Years' War was actually a series of at least four separate wars that later historians grouped together for simplicity's sake. After all, the wars feature the same main players, namely the English and French monarchies, along with their allies. But in the course of those 116 years, English and French armies took several timeouts, sometimes timeouts lasting for years at a time. For example, war was interrupted for a few years by the Black Plague in the 1350s, because, you know, it's hard to keep troops motivated to kill each other 
while they are getting bitten by fleas from hell, causing them to have acute fever, vomit blood, and get covered in pus-filled boils. Never mind the fact that when a huge percentage of your population is dying horrible deaths, transforming the countryside in a scene from The Walking Dead, fighting a war over who gets to sit on the throne seems a bit petty. In any case, by the time Joan of Arc stepped onto the scene, and she'll only be a part of the war for a couple of years, so really a tiny percentage when you think about it, But in any case, by the time she stepped onto the scene, the conflict had been going on for almost a century already. So let's look at its origins. If we really want to reach back in time, we could look at the year 1066, when the Normans, who were vassals of the King of France, invaded England. And so from that point forward, the King of England was also a vassal of the King of France. This is by no means the origin of the Hundred Years' War, but it set the stage for the complicated clashes between the French and English kings over the size of English holdings in France. French kings often sought to reduce reduce these holdings in France for fear that their powerful vassals would get a bit too powerful. To complicate things further, over the centuries, there were lots of intermarriages between French and English royal families, so that both the kings of France and England would often have several of the same family ancestors, and at least technically could both at times claim they were the legitimate heirs to either throne. That right there is one of the problems with a monarchic system. The lines of inheritance can get messy. For example, if only male heirs are recognized and no male heir is produced during a certain generation, now we have a problem, as more distant relations make a claim to the throne, and you know what that means when that happens. If you can hear in the background Bugs Bunny's voice saying, of course you realize this means war, you are correct. This is exactly what happened when in 1328, the French king Charles IV died without any surviving sons. When Charles IV died, however, his wife was pregnant, so everyone was at the edge of their seats because there was still a 50-50 shot that the creature popping out of the queen's womb would be a boy, and in that case everyone could settle down and France would have a legitimate king. A possible war, in this case one that would last over a century, was literally hanging on the gender of the infant. Since they had no ultrasounds back then, that would allow you to know if the baby would be a boy or a girl, they had to go about it the old-fashioned way, and wait until the baby emerges screaming out of the mom's body to find out whether they would have a war or not. So the day finally arrived, and and the baby had the wrong genitals. Well, uh, wrong at least from the point of view of paternal dynastic succession. I definitely do not mean to imply there's anything wrong with the glorious nature of female genitals. So in any case, after taking one look at the baby's genitals, everybody got ready for war. There was now a sharp break after about 300 years of dynastic succession. 
and all hell was about to break loose. And I don't even mean that too metaphorical, because conditions in France would truly become hellish over the next century or so. The two leading contenders for the crown were Philip of Valois and Edward III of England. Edward III was Charles IV's nephew, being the son of Charles' sister Isabel. But the French nobility, with the theological support of the University of Paris, decided that the right of inheritance could only be passed through the male line. Being the son of the king's sister just didn't cut it, so Edward III was just out of luck. In much better luck was Philippe, Count of Valois, who was the nearest heir through male ancestry, since he was Charles IV's first cousin. So the French nobility agreed to crown him as Philip VI. Initially, the English king Edward III seemed to be a fairly good sport about it and be willing to let it go. He took it less well in the following years, when the French alliance with Scotland threatened to limit Edward's desire to expand north. So first you steal the French crown from me and I let it go and now you don't even let me kill my fair share of Scots? Edward III had dead it with Philip. I'm actually oversimplifying it a bit because there are 32,000 other issues primarily having to do with the English domains within the boundaries of France. But the bottom line is that by 1337, Edward III decided he was done playing nice guy and he would renew his claim to the French throne. Philip VI was similarly ready to throw down, particularly since Edward III had, as a permanent guest at his court, one of the French king's enemies. We won't get into this backstory because Zor will never get out of this. So for all intents and purposes, this was the beginning of the Hundred Year War. I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow account of the war because A would take forever, B it's maddening confusing and not particularly relevant in its details to our story. So I'll gloss over much of it. One of my favorite highlights was an attempt to solve the war by having Edward III and Philip VI settle things by single combat. Had they gone through with it, it would have been a glorious moment. It would have certainly would have been much manlier for them to enter the arena with an axe and solve their disputes among themselves until only one of them remained standing. Much more entertaining and much less misery for everyone else. But they eventually decided this plan wasn't so hot after all, and it was much better for thousands of their subjects to kill each other instead. Depending on who you ask, there are different versions of which one of the two didn't agree to single combat, but the bottom line is that we did not get an epic one-on-one battle for the throne. As I mentioned earlier, the Black Death sent everyone packing when it hit France in the late 1340s. In the years to come, we see the French managing to get crushed by inferior English numbers multiple times. The French king 
a new one since Philip VI was long dead by then, getting captured. Truces last in a few years, particularly when both sides run out of money. But ultimately neither side been able to conclusively crush the other. So through fighting, famine and plague, the population of France was cut in half through the 1300s. The traditional structure of society was collapsing under the weight of a nearly apocalyptic mortality rate. Roving bands of pillaging mercenaries, when they found themselves out of work, they would just go on these missions terrorizing the countryside. So many people were dying that the system of serfdom that had been the norm for so long was now no longer feasible. As author Catherine Harrison puts it, those whom the Black Death didn't kill, it freed from bondage. Peasants, serfs, laborers, tens of thousands of commoners, seized the chance to turn on the aristocracy they had served for as long as anyone could remember, taking over the chateau of those who had died in the state to feel the warmth of a feather bed and taste the spell of a silver goblet imparted to a mouthful of wine. When one takes into account the incalculable amount of suffering and untold misery caused by the Hundred Years' War, it's very easy to get cynical. All this horror happened because members of the ultra-elite among the English and French royal families couldn't agree on which one of them had a right to the throne. They were mostly interrelated, so, you know, because they were really family members, essentially, basically the Hundred Years' War was a family squabble among relatives that ended up causing massive bloodshed among the ordinary people of both countries. And for the most part, that's exactly how I feel about the conflict. But if nothing else as an interesting thought experiment, it's worth considering that Everything that has made French culture unique for the past 600 years may have not existed had the English won the Hundred Years' War. Maybe, maybe not. There are different theories about it, but that's definitely a possibility. So in any case, to add some confusion to an already horrible historical context, not only were much of the, 13, of the 1300s and the early 1400s dominated by war, with multiple people claiming the French throne. But there were also multiple popes fighting each other, each one claiming to be Jesus' rightful right-hand man on earth. And without getting into the super complicated specifics of who all the various wannabe popes were and what they wanted, let's just say that the incredible level of corruption within the church stimulated the activities of reformers like Jan Hus in Bohemia and others like him. Hus was a Czech Catholic preacher who railed against clerical greed, promoted the idea of using reason to go along with faith, pushed for the translation of the Bible in languages people actually spoke and could understand, and basically laid down what will become Martin Luther's program years later. Just to clarify, by the way, because I've had it happen in my history classes more than once, 
No, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King are not the same people. One is a German guy from the 1500s, one is an African-American guy from the 1900s. Different human beings. Huss, however, was less lucky than Luther and had less political protection, so he ended up being burned at the stake in 1415 as a heretic. Because, you know, Nothing says you love Jesus like burning alive people who would like to reform the church. Okay, so far I've given you the bare bones of some of the early phases of the Hundred Years' War. If the series were actually about the war, I would deserve an F- because I'm skimming the subject, mentioning only a tiny fraction of the important developments in the conflict. But again, this is just an effort to give you the minimum necessary information so that by the time Joan of Arc makes her entrance onto the scene, we can appreciate the context of her story. Let's fast forward through the decades and look at some of the people who will play a more direct role in the politics shaping Joan of Arc's world. Charles VI is a good one to get the ball rolling. He was king of France for 42 years between 1380 and 1422. One of the first things to know about him is that his mind was on vacation more often than not, which is my charitable way of saying he was flat-out crazy. For this reason, he was appropriately nicknamed the Mad King, which sounds very Game of Thrones, but he was not nearly as vicious as his uh, Game of Thrones counterpart. He was just heavily mentally ill, and his mental illness had a profound impact on the history of the Hundred Years' War. His subjects first found out that the king was mad in rather dramatic fashion in 1392, when he was 24 years old. At that time, political rivalries among aristocrats led one of them to attempt to murder one of the king's most trusted advisors. The king didn't take it well and was determined to hand down the would-be assassin in Brittany where he had received hospitality and protection. Since the Duke of Brittany was unwilling to give up the would-be assassin, King Charles personally led troops on a campaign. During the march, a man suffering from leprosy and likely mentally ill himself approached the king screaming, Ride no further, noble king, turn back, you are betrayed. No one paid much attention to him, and this episode would have likely been forgotten if he weren't for the fact that a bit later, one of the king's attendants was struggling with the unpleasant side effects of marching in armor under the summer sun. Feeling like he were about to pass out, he dropped the king's lance, which crashed with a very loud sound against another attendant's metal helmet. The summer heat, the sudden clanging noise, the tension of heading to war, the weird leper yelling creepy warnings about betrayal, and who knows what else created the perfect storm in Charles' scrambled brain to take him over the edge. He suddenly screamed, Forward against the traitors! They wish to deliver me to the enemy! And sheathed his sword and began killing his own men. Five of them, 
lay dead on the ground before some of his soldiers could subdue him. And things only got mildly better after this. For the rest of his life, Charles' mental state would keep switching from weeks of sanity, where he would speak and behave in a seeming, uh, seemingly reasonable manner, to weeks when he would completely lose it and give in to extreme paranoia and delusion. During these episodes, he would not recognize his family members and forget who he was. In one occasion, he refused to bathe or change his clothes for five months, I'm sure to the delight of anyone within smelling distance. At other times, he voiced his belief that he was made of glass, so he had iron bars placed on his clothes to protect him from breaking. Yeah, I'm not making that up. The king believed that he was made of glass. Clearly, from a political standpoint, having a mad king posed a bit of a problem. When your head of government believes he's made of glass, it goes without saying that you just can't let him make important decisions. So other aristocrats had to step in and take the reins of power handling the business of government for him. As author Francis Gies puts it, thus, in the court of the Mad King, two parties aligned themselves behind two contrasting chiefs. Louis of Orléans, handsome, open-handed, pleasure-loving, admired by knights and ladies, but regarded by the Paris merchants and shopkeepers as a spendthrift and a tyrant, and John the Fearless of Burgundy, who posed as a plain man, defender of liberal ideas, friend of the middle class, enjoying the adulation of the wealthy citizens and of the intellectuals of the universities of Paris. Add to this quote that they supported different popes. John supported the one in Rome, Louis the one in Avignon in southern France. Add that John was in favor of peace with England because of his Flemish subjects depended on English wool, whereas Louis wanted to retake French land from the English. Add also that John campaigned against taxes to get people on his side, whereas Louis was not as hostile to imposing heavy taxes. Louis was the younger brother of the king. John the Fearless was their cousin. In a functional family, they would all sit around the table and come up with a working compromise that could serve everyone. But instead, as we will soon see, their power struggle will spawn several murders, a civil war, and the rekindling of the Hundred Years' War. John the Fearless' father had taken a role that in Game of Thrones terms would be the hand of the king, the power behind the throne. John wanted the same position for himself, but Louis, the Duke of Orléans, also wanted the same thing. So the scene was very much set for a clash between the cousins of the houses of Orléans and Burgundy. In November 1407, John decided to turn their Cold War into a hot one. 
Louis was in Paris, walking down the streets with a few attendants, when he ran into 15 guys with knives and axes. As it turns out, they weren't there for a social visit. The 15 guys got to work with their tools, and within seconds, Louis' hand was cut off and his skull was split open by an axe. Louis' attendants were completely useless since they had no weapons. The best one of them could do was die along with Louis. Another one was wounded trying to protect him, and the rest split, leaving the duke to spill his brain on the cobblestones. Louis' wife and son demanded vengeance against whoever had ordered a hit. And finding the guilty party wasn't exactly a difficult task. John the Fearless made no mystery of the fact that he was the one who had paid the assassins to kill Louis. Now, you'd think that admitting to the murder of the king's brother was a bit of a gamble. But John was fairly confident that he could spin it in such a way as to come across as a good guy. If you paid any attention to the 2016 presidential campaign in the United States, you may remember how in an effort to prove a point about the loyalty of his supporters, Donald Trump said he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, and not lose a single vote. Basically, here John the Fearless was doing the same thing, except that in his case, murder was just, wasn't just an hypothetical thing, but was very much a reality. For the sake of doing good PRs, which is rather important after you acknowledge responsibility for murder, John paid a Master of Theology from the University of Paris to write a flowery justification for killing Louis. You see how things had changed. Back then, an academic could still be hired to justify political assassinations. You know, your high school counselor could have mentioned that if you get into this field, you may end up handsomely paid to write murder rationalization. It's a very profitable field, lots of demand. The spin went something like this. Yes, John was guilty. But Louis was a tyrant, so he deserved to have his skull split. And John was a hero for doing everyone a favor in reading the word of Louis. Not necessarily the most convincing argument I've ever heard. Had I been John, I would have wanted my money back. But John had a big army, which was a better argument. He also had the support of the people of Paris due to his anti-tax stance. So the Mad King figured, okay, my cousin just murdered my brother, that's bad, but now that Louis is gone, who am I going to turn to next time I can't remember my name or I think I'm made of glass? So just to play it safe, the king pardoned John, and John began to act as hand of the king. He had the job he wanted after all. His rival was dead, life was good. Who said the murder doesn't pay? The new Duke of Orleans was named Charles, like his uncle the king and like a ton of other people in this story. I'll try to ignore most of them because otherwise there will be way too many Charleses. I'll only mention the essential ones. In any case, by 1410, Charles was only 15 years old. Uh, and by Charles right now, I'm talking about the Duke of Orleans. Initially, he had been bossed into signing a peace with John. 
his father's murderer. But he still remembered the oath that his mom had asked him to swear as she died of illness only a year or so after her husband's death. Some people, when they are close to dying, they forgive their enemies and try to settle all, all grievances. But Charles' mom, Valentina Visconti, was an Italian from my home city of Milan, and proving that stereotypes are true and Italians take revenge very seriously, one of her last acts was to ask her son to swear vengeance against the, John the Fearless and his Burgundian faction. With both of his parents dead, the 15-year-old Charles gained a father-in-law when he married the daughter of the Count of Armagnac. Together, Armagnac and Charles began building an anti-Burgundian alliance. The next few years would see the Armagnacs trying to wrestle control of the government away from the Burgundians in what amounted to a low-intensity civil war. By 1413, the Armagnac-Orléans alliance kicked John the Fearless out of Paris and took over. Realizing that when the French were not fighting the British, they would get busy killing each other, the English figured the time was just right to jumpstart another phase of the Hundred Years' War. It had been quite a few years since the English had tried to invade France, but now with the Burgundians and the Armagnac at each other's throat, the opportunity was clearly knocking at the door. Henry V had recently become King of England, and he was very much looking forward to adding King of France to his business card. There was a bit of triangular diplomacy going on between the Armagnac on one side, the Burgundian on the other, and the English on yet another. For a while, it looked like the Burgundians and the English may join together, because John the Fearless needed good relations with the English due to the fact that his subjects participated in the cloth trade and the English supplied the cloth, so he really couldn't afford to get on their bad side. But at the same time, he was afraid of losing his support among French citizens, and so John the Fearless entered in an uneasy alliance with his former enemies, the Armagnacs, with both sides more or less reconciling or at least temporarily stopping trying to kill each other for the sake of blocking the English invasion. Because of the lingering tension between the two leading factions in France, John the Fearless sent his troops and his younger brothers to join the Armagnac and the King's army, but didn't take to the field himself. And so in this way, Many of the lords from the civil war started making peace with each other before getting ready to battle against the English at Agincourt on October 25th, 1415. The French had the much larger numbers. Modern estimates place the English army at somewhere between 6,000 and 9,000 soldiers, primarily longbowmen, and the French somewhere between 12,000 and 36,000. So the French were feeling pretty good about their odds. Author Helen Castor described what happened in very poetic terms, so I'll quote 
a bit of her. Uh, I really enjoy this. Uh, like Ellen Castor is a very good writer, and some of her telling of these stories, uh, it's pretty cool. So I want to give you a taste for her prose here. Time slowed as the pale sun rose higher. Suddenly, an English cry went up, and their banners began to move. This would be the hour. The French lines launched themselves across the land they had assembled to defend. Then the air shifted with a thrum, and all at once the sky was dark. Razor-tipped arrows, unleashed in a numberless, roiling storm, plunged through breastplates and visors, muscle and bone. Violent death was falling from the clouds, and in response, spurs kicked screaming horses to charge down the archers, from whose bows the slaughter flew. They found only death, of a different kind, impaling themselves on the sharpened stakes that, they saw too late, bristled from the ground on which the archer stood. Or, wheeling in panic and stumbling under the pounding hoofs of those who pressed behind. Dead and living fell together, crashed into suffocating hurt, one on top of another, in heap piles from which none would rise. For more than two hours, French soldiers labored onward, heavy feet struggling in sucking mud or tangled in the twisted limbs of the fallen. And all the while, English blades hacked and stabbed and gouged. Later, Ellen Custer say, France lay broken on a field of blood. That's it intense line to write right there France lay broken on a field of blood that's intense the battle was a triumph of ranged weapons against cavalry the English king Henry V had demonstrated his toughness by fighting in the battle and even taking an axe blow to his own helmet he also demonstrated his ruthlessness when he made a decision with bloody consequences Realizing that the numbers of captured French knights was so high that it was conceivable that they could grab the weapons abandoned on the battlefield and overwhelm their capture, Henry ordered his troops to kill all except the most valuable hostages. This offended his knight's sense of chivalry, but when he added that he would have hanged anybody disobeying, a slaughter of the prisoners of war began. By the time all was done, two of John the Fearless brothers lay dead, along with a very high percentage of the French nobility. Some estimates suggest that possibly up to 40% of French nobility died in that battle. Charles, the Duke of Orleans, was discovered trapped under a pile of corpses, captured and brought to England as a hostage. Even according to the war's estimates, the English had lost no more than a few hundred men. French casualties are estimated anywhere between 1,500 and 11,000, depending on who you listen to, plus possibly a couple of thousands captured. Despite the fact that most of northern France was now under English control, following the Battle of Agincourt, King Henry returned to a hero's welcome in England, where he regrouped and began planning phase two of the invasion. So I found that interesting that they won this overwhelming victory 
but King Henry decided not to press forward, he actually returned to England and slowed things down a bit. The English believed that the victory at Agincourt simply signified that God approved of their king's claim to the French throne, since few Englishmen had defeated so many French soldiers. So the Bishop of Winchester, for example, was mad that the French couldn't accept it after this was the third major defeat they had suffered over the years. He's quoted as saying, Oh God, why does this wretched and stiff-necked nation not obey these divine sentences, so many and so terrible, to which, by a vengeance most clearly made manifest, obedience is demanded of them. The French saw it in a very different way. The way they saw it was, the English had no right to the throne, since claims through the female line were not valid, and also the French simply didn't want him as king. So the French believed they were being punished for their sins, you know, in that sense both the, both the English and the French agreed that nothing happened unless it was God's will, so after you get smashed so bad in battle, the French had to take some degree of responsibility and think, yes, the English say that we are punished for our sins, it is true, we are being punished for our sins, but our sins are not that God has approved of an English king sitting on our throne, the, especially the Armagnac supporters said that France was being punished because of John the Fearless killing of the Duke of Orleans. But regardless of their refusing to bow to English demands, it's undeniable that Agincourt gave the entire nation PTSD and crushed its self-esteem. After this, a very defeatist attitude started prevailing among people in the army, the nobility, everybody. To make things worse, the truce between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs didn't survive the battle either. Within days from fighting together against the English, John the Fearless moved his forces against the Armagnacs, who had suffered the greatest losses at Agincourt. If there was any room to avoid civil war, he rested with the Dauphin, the son of the king, Louis. Let me explain quickly about the word I just used. During particular periods in history, the French used the term Dauphin for the heir to the throne, and this was one of those periods. Dauphin is actually the French word for dolphin, and if you are wondering why they call their princess dolphins, it was a reference to the dolphin found on the royal coat of arms. So, just keep that in mind. I'll use the term dauphin, which basically means the prince for um, in the French context of this time. In any case, the current dauphin, Louis, was the best hope for peace between the Burgundians under John the Fearless and the Armagnacs since he tried to work compromises among his relatives. John the Fearless had married off his daughter to him, so that she would be in line to become Queen of France. John had already tried this game, and marrying her off to Louis' older brother, but Louis' older brother had died too soon, so now his daughter was betrothed to brother number two. 
As it turns out, this lady really didn't bring much luck, so in 1415 Louis also died. Desperate to keep a close connection to the royal family, John now married off his niece to the new Dauphin, John. But guess what happened? Yes, he also died shortly thereafter. So John was in the... John the Fearless was in trouble, particularly because the new guy to become Dauphin was the king and queen's fifth son, Charles. All of his four elder brothers had died without having kids, so despite being son number five, Charles now found himself as next in line. Considering how they had all died shortly after receiving the title of Dauphin, I imagine Charles heavily invested in amulets, kept his fingers crossed, and knocked on lots of wood constantly. But wait, why did I say that Charles becoming the Dauphin was trouble for John the Fearless? That's because Charles was engaged to be married to the daughter of a duke who hated John. In other words, marriage politics meant that Charles now had a much closer alliance with the Armagnac than with the Burgundians. His new mother-in-law was Yolande of Aragon, will play a key role in the story of Jean of Arc, so remember this lady. Yolande of Aragon. She'll show up again in the next episode. If by now you are beginning to hate your life and are completely lost in the monstrous list of names that make up this French version of Game of Thrones, you very much have my sympathy. The fact that these guys had no fantasy and keep using the same five names over and over so that there are multiple Charleses, Philips, Johns, Louis, also doesn't help. Just know that I'm really trying to keep the names I actually mentioned to a bare minimum. And also keep in mind that even if you forget all the names, the big picture is simple. Rivalry between related families created two factions, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs, struggling for power while the English were at war with France. After this reminder that you are not a bad person if you can't keep all the names straight, let's jump back into our French Game of Thrones. Finding himself without any more marriage alliances to put one of his daughters as being in line to be the next queen, John began blatantly lying. He now wrote a letter saying the Armagnacs had killed the two previous Dauphin, which there was less than zero evidence for this, but, you know, making up outrageous charges against political enemies was a time-honored tactic then as it is now. So by summer 1417, John decided to move from a smear campaign to a military campaign, and he moved with his army toward Paris. His opponents, the Armagnac, had made a political mistake. Upset with Queen Isabeau, constant switching alliances, and being and her being overly friendly to the Burgundians, the Armagnac regime had either arrested, confiscated her personal property, and separated her from her kids to reduce her influence. This was a big, big big political blunder, 
since in this way they push her into a more open alliance with John the Fearless, who managed to free her and get her firmly on his side. This also opened the rift between her and their son, the Dauphin, Charles, if you're keeping track of the names, since she blamed his alliance with the Armagnac for what had happened to her. So now the political situation was the Armagnac party was allied with the Dauphin, and John the Fearless was with the Queen, and if not an outright ally, was getting cozy with the English, who at this time had started an invasion of Normandy. The king, in the meantime, was as crazy as always. By May 1418, John the Fearless and his troops managed to take Paris. Some Armagnac supporters managed to flee, including the Dauphin Charles. Those who didn't wished they had been much faster on their feet, since the partisans of John the Fearless massacred them in scores. It's estimated that somewhere between 550 and over 2,000 of them were murdered by the Burgundians. Among them was the Count of Armagnac himself, who had been the head of government for a while now. So John the Fearless' triumph seemed nearly complete. The leader of his opponents was dead, Paris was his, and he got to make his entrance into the city with the queen at his side. And the king... Well, the king was a bumbling idiot more often than not, so he deferred to John and the queen anyway. Um, the poor guy, I mean, in some way you feel bad for him, because he really had some serious mental illness. In some way the sources present him as a somewhat of a comical figure. In some way there's tragedy involved, because he was lack of leadership in France at this time that created all this drama that resulted into the death of so many people. So in any case, the only thing that prevented John the Fearless' victory from being complete was the fact that the Dauphin was still alive. But a 15-year-old on the run was not exactly much to worry about, or at least it didn't seem so at the time. Yes, Charles set up his own court in Bourges, a little over a hundred miles from Paris. And yes, technically he was still the prince. But it didn't seem like he could be much of a threat. He had very little money to finance his armies. So he probably would never be able to take back Paris. The only thing that could keep his court afloat was his mother-in-law, Yolande, using her money. But that was it. The Dauphin controlled the center and the south, while John controlled the north and the east. And the English kept invading with no one doing much to stop them. As Catherine O'Harrison puts it, the blight of foreign occupation descended on a populace already half by the previous century's periodic crop failures and famines, as well as the bubonic plague that still smoldered wherever cramped living conditions encouraged the spread of disease. After decades of pillaging the land they coveted, the English found themselves rulers of ghost towns, vineyards and fields of grain reduced to ash, homes and churches to rubble, livestock slaughtered 
and carcasses left to rot. So, yes, happy times. While the triangular diplomacy between John the Fearless, the Dauphin, and the King of England continued, here we come to a truly gangster turn in our story. The Dauphin seemed to cower to John the Fearless' power, and he begged for peace. He had been, he said he had been rash in refusing to join his mother, the Queen, and John the Fearless in Paris, and maybe he could be forgiven for having joined the Armagnacs come. He was only 15 after all, and so John the Fearless could feel final victory coming his way. This boy realized he was way in over his head, and he was ready to return and become a pawn in the hands of John the Fearless. Or uh, maybe that was a little optimistic of an assessment, but he was certainly showing himself not to be a threat and taking the first steps to at least reconcile with John the Fearless and essentially let him be. They had an initial meeting in July where they vowed to one another that they would both keep the peace. So now that they were all friends, the Dauphin proposed a follow-up meeting set for September 1419. They were to meet on a bridge in Montreux, with each of them bringing along a small escort of ten men. They swore oaths that they wouldn't hurt one another, and feeling confident that everything was proceeding according to plan, and the young Dauphin was ready to eat out of his hand, John the Fearless came to the meeting with his guard a bit lowered. What, it, what he didn't know was that this meeting was the equivalent of meeting Michael Corleone at the restaurant after he assures you he wants nothing but peace. Armagnac troops had carefully hid themselves all around the bridge. When John arrived, they sprang out from their hiding places, attack, and kill several Burgundians. Twelve years after orchestrating the assassination of the Duke of Orléans in Paris, and only one year after having the Count of Armagnac murdered, John the Fearless learned firsthand the concept of live by the sword, die by the sword. Or in this case, axe, since one of the defense men split his head by arranging a meeting between a war axe and John's skull. The guy who killed him had been in the service of the Duke of Orleans, so it was sweet vengeance for him. And just like that, with the swinging of an axe, the entire political situation in France had changed in an instant. Rather than owning it like a real gangster, the Dauphin tried to go for some really lame excuse. He said he had had no intention of breaking his oath and assassinate John, but John had pulled his sword out first, so his men had to start swinging axes to protect him from John's attack. That justification is obviously silly, since all of his troops were... Well, not all, but he had troops hidden and ready to ambush their enemies. So... Obviously, this was something that was planned, wasn't it? Oh, they attack first, we're gonna fight back. That didn't fly. 
Since the first attempt at a justification failed, the Dauphin tried a different one. It was his men who had broken the peace, but they had done so against his orders. Which is, in other words, is a way of saying, look, I'm not an oath-breaker and a murderer, I'm just a terrible leader with no control over his men. Let's just say it, Charles was really bad at this, and worst of all, no one bought it. With John the Fearless dead, leadership of the Burgundian faction passed into the hands of the new Duke of Burgundy, his son Philip the Good. Philip still had the Queen and King in his hands, so not surprisingly, they both expressed support for Philip and outrage against their own son, the Dauphin. After all, Charles' mother had made an alliance with John, and in light of Charles murdering John the Fearless, it's safe to say that she did not approve. The king, perhaps in a rare moment of sanity or perhaps not, wrote that his son was responsible for, I quote, breaking the peace for his involvement in the assassination of the Duke of Burgundy, and for this reason he had, again I quote, rendered himself unworthy to succeed to the throne or any other title. And so with the stroke of a pen, the king disinherited the Dauphin. The other big backlash to the killing of John the Fearless was that while I'm sure revenge felt good, after the murder, the Burgundians dropped their delicate diplomatic game and instead entered into an open alliance with the English. So this arrangement was formalized with an important treaty signed in May of 1420. In the treaty, the Mad King and his wife confirmed that Dauphin was no longer next in line to the throne, and recognized Henry V, King of England, as the legitimate heir who would inherit the kingdom after the Mad King's death. To add insult to injury, the Dauphin's mentally troubled father had married off the last of his unmarried daughters, Catherine, to the English king. From now on, France and England would share the same king. They would forever be at peace and they would live happily ever after. Spoiler alert, didn't quite work that way, as French and English will keep killing each other for many more centuries. Charles didn't take it well. He argued he was the legitimate heir, and his supporters argued that the treaty signed by his father was not binding since he was crazier than crazy by the time he signed it. And to make things even more complicated, others yet supported a different Charles, the Duke of Orleans, who, if you recall, was a captive among the English. So just when it looked like things couldn't go any better for Henry, the King of England, Henry's younger brother, Thomas, the Duke of Clarence, spoiled the party by leading an army into France against the Scot allies of the Dauphin, who were there ready to fight along with French troops. So this battle between English forces on one side and French and Scots on the others took place on March 22nd, 1421. Many chroniclers suggest that Thomas had a case of brother's envy. His brother, the king, Henry, 
had won a reputation as a great warrior, and Thomas was eager to earn the same. The eagerness, however, made him rash and impulsive, and the result was that his army was crushed and he took a mace blow to the face, at least according to some accounts, that terminated his earthly existence. So the King of England's family tree had lost one brother, but he had gained one son, since a few months later he and the Dauphin's sister Catherine had a baby, I keep switching the pronunciation, earlier I pronounced it in an English way, more like Catherine, now I, I don't know what I'm doing, in any case, you got the picture. They had a baby boy, also named Henry. I told you that these guys are terrible when it comes to fantasy for naming people. By December 1420, Henry of England, with Philip, Duke of Burgundy, had taken possession of Paris. The only thing Henry had to do to be recognized as king was to outlive his father-in-law, the Mad King, which didn't really seem that difficult of a task, since the Mad King was frail and crazy, while Henry was young and strong. But fate was in a funny mood, so Henry V died in 1422, probably of a stomach bug, as he had taken again to leading his army in France, just six weeks before the Mad King died. So due to the death of his father, the English king, and his grandfather, the French king, the ninth-month-old Henry VI of England ended up being king before he could even walk. His uncle John, the Duke of Bedford, was named regent for him in the lands they had conquered in France, and his uncle Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, regent for him in England. At this juncture in our story, I want to take a second to tell you something that really has nothing to do with anything and does not fit the narrative, but I've run into it while I was researching and I just have to tell you about it, so consider it a super brief interruption in our scheduled programming before I continue with our story. The thing that I feel compelled to tell you about was one of the forms of entertainment that was quite popular in Paris at this time. When people were truly bored and wanted to kick it up a notch, they would set up an enclosure in a large square, and within the enclosure they would put a pig and a few blind men in wearing heavy armor and carrying an equally heavy club. Whoever killed the pig would get to keep it, but the fun of the event was in seeing these guys swinging blindly, literally, and whacking each other in the process. Had they not been wearing armor, they would have all killed each other. But since they were wearing armor, they would just whack the hell out of each other. And eventually somebody would manage to whack the pig and kill it. And everybody watching would think it was great fun and would go home laughing and it was great. I was desperately trying to find a way to fit this into the narrative. It really doesn't, but I just could not pass this story because it was so weird. So, okay. Now that you have been inspired by this happy tale, back to our story. Within the defense court, things were far from rosy, as most of the men close to the king were busily employed trying to kill each other 
with more enthusiasm than they showed for killing either the Burgundians or the English. So you thought that this was be just Burgundians, Armagnac and English trying to kill each other. Eh, too easy. You have within these factions people wanting to kill one another. One of the players in our story will cross paths with Joan of Arc was Arthur, Count of Richmond. Arthur had fought at Ashcore, where he was captured for a while, but he had later been released and had climbed the military hierarchy within the defense court. And in 1424 was offered position as military leader of Armagnac France, despite the fact that his brother-in-law was Philip of Burgundy. But the defense court was a nest of snakes ready to stab each other in the back, with each one trying to amass as much wealth as possible for themselves. So Arthur was at odds with one of the defense's most powerful advisors, Georges de la Tremoille. The result of these internal conflicts was that the defense side had a hard time putting forward a unified front against Burgundians and the English. The result of this was the occasional military disaster, such as the Battle of the Vernoil on August 17, 1424. A group of Scots allied to the Dauphin had taken the town of Vernoil by pretending to be English and leading some of their own countrymen as prisoners. Falling for this rouse, the inhabitants of Vernoil opened their gates and realized too late that in so doing they had given up their town to their enemies. Not long afterwards, the Duke of Bedford led about 10,000 soldiers to retake the town. A French-Scottish army of about 15,000 went out to meet them. After an inconclusive archery duel, about 2,000 cavalrymen from my own town of Milan, where mercenaries in the defense army, charged. The English normally handled this kind of situation by unleashing a narrow storm on the advancing cavalry. But they found out to their horrors that their arrows couldn't pierce the superior armor of the Milanese mercenaries. Milanese weapon makers were renowned all over Europe for being among the best, and their armors were particularly well suited to resist direct hits. There's still a street in Milan called Via Molino delle Armi, which can be translated as Weapon Factory Street, whose name testified to this tradition of weapon-making in Milan. Helen Castor described the Milanese mercenaries as a wall of muscle and bone encased in steel. Their charge seemed to destroy the English lines. Many English soldiers were killed, and many fled in fear for their lives. Thinking that the battle was lost, a certain Captain Young ordered the 500 men under his command to retreat. This was a decision that was not appreciated by his superiors, who later ordered to have him drawn and quartered as punishment for retreating. In case you are wondering about what drawn and quartered means, well, it was a form of execution in which the condemned would have his genitals cut off, would be disemboweled, beheaded, 
and this corpse would be cut up in four pieces. Something that was quite popular in England. But back to the battle. The Milanese raided the English baggage train, and by the time they made it back to the battlefield, they figured they would find the French army victorious and everybody parting. But that's not what had happened. After the cavalry charge, the remaining English soldiers and the French had gotten in an insanely brutal close quarter fight. Even Bedford himself had gotten his hands dirty, swinging a two-handed poleaxe that eliminated several Frenchmen from the gene pool. Man, I miss the days when political figures would swing two-handed poleaxes. That should be a requirement for holding office right there. The fight between Scots and the English was equally brutal, with no one giving or asking for quarter. Some estimates suggest about 6,000 died on the French-Scots side, with about 1,600 on the English side. This battle had nearly destroyed the defense army. To make things worse, what was left of the French army lost a few more smaller engagements. The English Burgundian allies raided a small village known as Domremy. Why am I even mentioning a raid on a village inhabited by only a few peasant families? Because that village, as we will see in the next episode, was the hometown of the lady who was going to alter the course of the war. But were not yet ready for her entrance onto the scene. In the meantime, French troops were completely demoralized. Their losses in the field, coupled with their being underpaid, if paid at all, since the government was out of money, were creating a sense of impending doom. By 1428, the English army was getting ready for one more offensive to win the whole war. On October 12, 1428, the English began the siege of Orléans. Technically speaking, attacking, you know, initiating this siege violated all the rules of chivalry, since according to the established laws of war at the time, you could not attack a city belonging to someone that you held hostage. Specifically, the English had the Duke of Orléans as a prisoner since 1415. And the reason why you're not supposed to attack an aristocratic uh, prisoner of war lands was because you needed to leave them the opportunity to keep working to pay for the ransom. But Orleans occupied a much too important strategic position, so the English decided to skip the technicalities and not play nice. If they could take Orleans, their path to conquer the rest of France was wide open. And so on October 12, they began laying siege to the city. This was not going to be a fast affair. They were going to make life progressively harder for the inhabitants until hopefully they would surrender. A rather entertaining episode took place during the first few weeks of the siege. Both sides had agreed to a truce for a few days. And to relieve the boredom, two French knights challenge two English knights to a joust. They all figured it would be good sport, so joust they did. 
one French knight unhorsed an English one with a thrust of the lance, and the other match was fought to a draw. Of more importance to the outcome of the siege was something that happened to the English commander in charge of the siege, the Earl of Salisbury. As the two sides traded cannon shots, the Earl was in one of the English forts surrounding the city, which was seemingly a safe place. But a cannon from the city hit a window of the room where the Earl was. The shot sent an iron bar from the window to fly across the room, hitting the Earl and slicing his head in half. That made it a little difficult for him to continue carrying out his duties as commanders, or to continue breathing, or anything else. So upon his death, the Earl of Suffolk took over. I'm taking a complete guess on how to pronounce that name, because I have no idea, but in any case. Unfortunately for the English, he was not nearly as skilled as a commander. Before dying, the previous Earl had used these guns to destroy 12 water mills that helped provide bread for the people of the city. The citizens, however, responded by building 11 horse-driven mills so that they were not at risk of starving anytime soon. The defense of the city... <laughs> this is kind of funny. The defense of the city was headed by a guy who became known to history by the title of The Bastard of Orleans, which doesn't quite sound as a compliment, but it was actually intended as a respectful title since it acknowledged that he was the illegitimate and yet recognized son of the previous Duke of Orleans, the one who had been murdered by the order of John the Fearless. Since his legitimate brother had been prisoner in England since 1415, the bastard was the only male member of the House of Orleans to defend the city. By the way, since I'll keep using the term the bastard throughout the series because that's how actually they refer to him in historical sources of the time i hope it will sound less weird as time goes by but right now it's very bizarre to keep using it in any case the bastard tried some attacks on the english forts in december and january but with minimal results very little of what he was doing was working and the dauphin charles didn't have the money or the guts to lead a relief army to save Orleans. On February 12, 1429, the bastard became more daring and initiated what came to be known as the Battle of the Herrings. The idea was to steal the English supply train, bring food into the city and deprive English soldiers at the same time. You know, he had heard that there was this supply train coming to um, bring a bunch of goodies for the English soldier besieging the city. So he figured, if I can intercept it and steal it from them, that will be a double win. So the bastard at the head of about three to 4,000 fighters went out to intercept the supply train. Fastolf was the English commander in charge of the supply train, as soon as he noticed the French fighters approaching, he put his wagons in a defensive formation. Imagine the stereotypical cow cowboys and Indians setup, you know, where you literally circle up your wagons um, to 
set up some kind of barricade against the impending attack. The bastard initiated the battle by using gunpowder weapons and inflicting casualties and breaking some wagons. So things seemed to proceed well, but then he got impatient and decided to charge a bit too soon. The first to charge were the Scottish infantrymen allied with the French, and the English longbows massacred them. Then the French cavalry attacked, with equally bad result. So the attack had failed, and the French army had to retreat yet again. The English were able to get their supplies, and this was just a major hit for French morale. The bastard had lost about 500 men, while the English had only lost four, or at least that's what many estimates tell us. So I think you get the picture. You know, by now, to say that things didn't look rosy for the Dauphin was putting it mildly. His army was losing more often than not. Men in his service were more interested in stabbing each other in the back than fighting the enemy. The English held the city of Reims, where the ceremony to crown French kings traditionally took place. So unless the Dauphin was able to free this city, he could not be officially considered as king, not even by his supporters. He already was victim of rumors saying that he wasn't the king's son. He had been disinherited, didn't control much land, and was dealing with two contenders to the throne. The English and their Burgundian allies controlled huge parts of the country. And with Orleans likely to fall in a not-too-distant future, the path was open for the English and the Burgundians to conquer the rest of France. The Dauphin knew he was in a desperate situation. I mean, there's no lying about it, there's no... He, he was pretty clear. Fully aware of the gravity of what he was facing, the Dauphin was actually considering giving up abandoning France to the English and fleeing to either Spain or Scotland in exile. So it looked like the game was up for him. As much as he tried, he couldn't see any logical path to victory. And this would have meant that the French would have just lost the Hundred Year War and the English would have ruled over France. But little did the Dauphin know the help was on its way. A kind of help that did not seem logical, reasonable, or likely. Help was coming in the form of an illiterate teenage peasant, a female at that, who was going to change his fortunes. On February 23rd, just 11 days after the Bastard of Orleans lost the battle mentioned a minute ago, seven riders arrived at Chignon at the court of the Dauphin. Among them was a person who, through sheer willpower, would radically change the course of the war. A girl dressed as a man and with her hair cut short, coming with news that God had sent her to lift the siege of Orleans and make sure the Dauphin would be crowned the King of France.
this it's a wrap for another episode of History on Fire. This series is gonna be a long one, it's gonna be four episodes, so get ready to dig in deep into the John of Arc story as we continue this for the next three months. For now I want to give a huge thank you to the sweet folks who have been donating on my Patreon at any level, and particularly so I want to thank the people who have been donating at the $50 level, so big thank you to Justin Maples, Josh Riddle, and David Woodhouse, plus a lady who's too shy to have her name read on, on here, but thank you anyway. Thank you so much for sponsoring History on Fire. Uh, also a big thank you to all of you who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link that's found on the History on Fire podcast website. Of course, needless to say, also a big thank you to the people who keep the lights on around here. So let me give a big thank you to our sponsors. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Nordic Track. I'm super excited about being sponsored by them because I actually want their products. This is not just stuff that is like, oh, this looks good, maybe. No, I am getting this stuff. I've officially decided. I have my eyes on this one uh, treadmill desk. Uh, what I dig about it is the idea that, you know, I spend an ungodly amount of hours at the computer every day researching, working, answering messages. And so the idea of being able to have a standing desk connected to a treadmill where I can walk at a leisurely pace while I get my work done, but by the end of the day I've just clocked in miles and miles, I kind of dig that concept. So that's next on my shopping list. Special offer for History on Fire listeners, you get $75 off your Nordic Track purchase by visiting nordictrack.com forward slash history. Again, use the offer code HISTORY, it's nordictrack.com forward slash history, and you'll save $75 off your purchase. In addition to treadmills, they have exercise bikes, incline trainers, a bunch of equipment for strength training, all sort of really healthy, really good stuff, so check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4hymns.com one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost Needless to say, it would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode is also brought to you by greats.com. 
Greats is a wonderful sneakers company offering men's and women's styles. They have, uh, I, they just sent me a pair and I, I forgot how much I like sneakers. I've been wearing different kind of shoes lately and these ones are just awesome. So check it out. They have several of their best-selling products from both lace-ups and slip-ons. Um, I particularly dig the slip-on because I never wear shoes in the house so I like the idea of being able to get in and out of shoes quickly. One cool thing for History on Fire listeners is that you can get a 15% discount on your first purchase by going to www.greats.com with the code HISTORY, all capital letter, the code HISTORY. So if you find yourself in need of shoes, check them out because I've tried them and they are very, very good. You guys by now know who else we are sponsored by since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com And you have heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week. Three days a week, we got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four. High quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also, please show some love to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has a whole variety of products that I use every day from some of their supplements, including Alpha Brain that I just tried earlier today for the millionth time in my life. Excellent stuff. Exercise equipment. If you walk into my house right there in the living room, there's a collection of kettlebells that get to be put to very good use. Their kettlebells, by the way, are amazing. They have some really artistic shapes, some of them. They are functional and yet really beautiful. They're like a work of art. So you have exercise equipment, you have, um, particularly on it is famous for their supplements and for some of the special foods they sell. In addition, you have clothing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So rather than me trying to tell you everything they have, which would take the whole episode, go check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. And the other good folks who sponsor me since forever are the people at Datsusara. Website is dsgear.com. Again, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. There's no code, no slash, no nothing. You can just go there and check out all the goodies. They just restocked all their bags. Um, I use the backpack every time I travel. My daughter takes one of their backpacks to school. I use a computer bag when I go to teach at the university. 
lots of great stuff there, so check out for the greatest hemp gear on the planet at dsgear.com. This episode of History on Fire is also sponsored by Casper.com. These guys make some unbelievably comfortable mattresses. And considering that you spend one third of your life sleeping, well, hopefully, sleep is important, so I would strongly recommend that one third of your day is going to sleeping, the least you can do, the favor you can do to yourself is find a way to be comfortable. And Casper mattresses do just that. They have over 20,000 reviews, for the most part, all kind of close to five stars, over 20,000, that's quite a lot, across Casper itself, Amazon, Google. So Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress company. They have a couple of different models, one the fancier, if you can afford it, get it, absolutely, the other one for a more basic, but still incredibly high quality mattress. Plus, they offer pillows, sheets, other things. The prices are much more affordable than you would be if you go anywhere else, because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. If you are not completely satisfied, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So you get to try it, and if you don't want it, you can return it, which is always a very nice thing. Casper has been nice enough to actually send me one of their mattresses, and who? I just received it, unboxed it, and I got to spend the night sleeping on it before recording this. It's like floating on clouds while hordes of happy singing gnomes spend the night massaging all your sore muscles. That's more or less the experience that you're gonna have, or at least that's the experience that I had. So, when they say comfort, they are not kidding. I can't promise that they actually have tiny massaging gnomes who sing all night while being all happy. That may just be my imagination. But I can tell you that the comfort is quite high. So get $50 toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash HOF and using the code HOF at checkout. Terms and conditions apply, so again that's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash HOF and using the code HOF at checkout. If you are missing any of the links from any of the, the stuff that I've been reading, you can find them all with the co- discount codes and everything else at the historyonfirepodcast.com website. Links are there in the episode notes. And with this, we are officially done. Thank you so much for your attention, and uh, hopefully I will see you next month for the next History on Fire episode.